but that the front of that fly forces that fly to wiggle extremely erratically all over the place. And it just, it's a trigger. It just drives those fish crazy. I caught a bunch of fish on it yesterday and then unfortunately sacrificed it to the bottom of the river at one point. So That was Pat Cohen describing what makes some of his patterns stand out from the crowd. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. We've heard it so many times on the podcast, but uh, if you want to stand out uh, from the crowd and uh, increase your game and decrease the learning curve, then getting a guide is definitely a uh, way to go and a lot of help. Um, I've been lucky enough to interview a bunch of guides, as you probably know if you've been listening to this uh, for a while over the year, and now I'm putting together some trips with those guides and, uh, and some of them are even going to be uh, hosted. So if you want to go to wetflyswing.com slash destination, uh, you can get some of the information on the next trip and see what we have going. In today's episode, I chat with uh, Pat Cohen, the tattoo artist gone wild for bass poppers. Pat tells a story of how he came to be one of the big names in fly tying in a super short period of time and how to tie tight poppers. Hear about the crazy flies Pat has tied over the years, including the baby bird and the snake pattern and why he doesn't spin deer hair. So, without further ado, here's Pat Cohen from RUSuperfly.com. How's it going, Pat? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah, good Good to have you on the show here. We're we're going to jump into uh, a couple of things. You know, we were just talking there off air. I think if I had to, you know, talk about this show, it'd, it'd kind of be equal parts flight tying, uh, a little bit of smallmouth bass and your background. You know, the, the, the RU Superfly and, and all the um, trimming uh, deer hair poppers is, I think, one of the things you're known for. But before we get into, you know, how you got there, can you just talk about how you first got into uh, fly fishing? Yeah. Um, so I, I always fished um, since I was a kid, always a part of my, uh, you know, kind of outdoor existence. Um, fly fishing didn't happen until very late, uh, about 2008 or so I started fly fishing and it was really just kind of an accident. Um, I was out with my dad and my brother and my brother had a fly spin combo rod, one of those Eagle claws, uh, in his trunk. So I grabbed it and I was like, I'm going to learn how to do this today. And none of us really fly fished, but I just, I don't know, just wanted to. And, uh, Walked out into the middle of the little stream that we were fishing and started and absolutely fell in love with it. I caught no fish with it the first day. Uh, I probably looked like a lunatic out there whipping it around, not knowing what I was doing. But, uh, yeah, it just kind of started from there. And then I went out and bought my own, became obsessed. And, uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. Just, now it's now it's what I do. Yeah, it's what you do, exactly. And and where were you at originally when you first got into it? What, what uh, part of the country? Uh, so I, I live in upstate New York. Um, the uh, the Squahari Creek is my my home smallmouth waters, and okay. uh, that is where I cut my teeth fishing in general. But really, uh, that's where I cut my teeth with a fly rod. Gotcha. And how do you spell that that stream? Uh, it's S C H O H A R I E Squahari gotcha. Creek. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. So yeah, actually, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty famous. Uh, it's a pretty famous river, really. Not not the warm water end of it, 
but the the cold water end uh, up above the reservoir is uh, a, a pretty pretty well known uh, trout fishery, and then it go it, the the lower twenty five miles of it becomes a warm water fishery, but the the upper end is pretty well known uh, trout stream. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, definitely, I've heard of it for sure. Um, so yeah, you mentioned uh, small, smallmouth bass, and I think that's something today we're going to jump into. Um, but before we j- kind of fully get into some of the tips there and how you catch smallmouth, can you just talk about the um, so the superfly? Are, are you superfly? How, how did that all come to be? And then um, you know how how'd you go from uh, addicted to uh, basically having a business and fly fishing? So um, all right, so two thousand eight. We said, you know, I started fly fishing, fell in love with it. Um, I was a tattoo artist at the time, and I doing that for a living enabled me to get out on the water a lot. Uh, I didn't have to be to work until, you know, noon every day. So I fished every morning before I went to work. Uh, at the time, the Schoharie was only 15 minutes down the road from me, 20 minutes max. Uh, so I went out. Every morning, and I fished. I think that first year of fishing from 2008 to 2009, I was on the water. I'm, it was like 260 days that year. I I wet a line, um, nice. and then from there, 2009, January 2009, I started tying flies. Um, and at the time, it was purely utilitarian. I just wanted to. I was fishing like a couple of the real basic flies and I just needed a lot of them. And I, I didn't have anything close to me fly shop wise to be able to go and, and constantly restock in the morning. It was like an hour drive to get to anywhere. So I learned to tie, uh, honestly, it was a crystal flash, uh, woolly bugger yep. is, is what I was fishing with initially. Um, and for the longest time, I mean, that year I was like, well, who needs anything else but that right. to catch everything? Exactly. So, you know, I learned to tie those and then it was a happy accident one day. I walked into uh I, it was either we have an LL Bean in Albany. I think maybe it was an LL Bean that I had walked into and I saw hair bugs. I saw these Dahlberg divers and I was like, "Whoa, what is this and what do I do with it?" And uh I bought one and I started fishing it. Um now, the smallmouth by me don't look up very often, but the largemouth, of course, mm-hmm. do. So so once I learned it was a topwater fly and, you know, it, it can imitate a, a minnow or, a, you know, a, a frog or whatever, I brought it to one of my little local reservoirs and I started fishing with it and started catching largemouth on top. And it was like the greatest thing since bread came sliced. You know, <laughs> it was like everything opened up and I was like, oh, my God. So now I need to learn how to tie these. So I taught myself how to tie those. I entered a competition through the fly tying forum, and I don't know that they do the little tying competition anymore. Oh, At the yeah. time, I guess it was one of the biggest national competitions going for fly tying. So in 2009, I had won uh, Rookie of the Year, which was kind of cool because uh, I'd only been tying for a few months at that point. And then 2010, I think it was, I, I won the whole thing. Um, hmm. And then I was invited from there to go to a show and tie at a booth. At, at, they have a magazine, uh, or they used to have a magazine. Um, 
so I, they invited me to go and tie at their booth, uh, and I did, and I brought a bunch of stuff that I'd made, and uh, the flies got all sorts of crazy attention because, you know, coming at it from an art standpoint, an art background, and not really being one for following rules and sticking to norms, I was kind of doing what I wanted and made crazy-looking patterns and whatever, and people were like, oh, my God, look at these things. And, like, maybe a year later or so, uh, the demand kind of got out of control, uh, which, again, it, it wasn't something that I expected. It just fell into it, I guess, is, is the best way I can describe it. I mean, I was still tattooing full-time. Mm -hmm. uh, Superfly was born from that, and, uh, and then I just grew it. Yeah, Lots that, of hard work. That, that's and then yeah, the, uh, and some of the stories I've we've had a lot of those, you know, er, new company stories on here, which have been r really amazing to hear. You, um, so I mean, the crazy patterns. What is? I mean, I've heard some of. I guess I haven't seen all of them, but I mean, you've had all sorts of things, right? Tying up, uh, you know, things that look like birds and all sorts of different patterns. What What do you think that early on was? What were you tying that really caught the eye? Is there anything? You know, we can. I was. Too. I mean, really, in the beginning, I was doing just basic hair bugs, you know, poppers and divers and things like that. Nothing crazy, but it, you know, it, when I first walked into some some fly shops and whatever, and I started looking around at the the things that were available as far as color schemes. I mean, they were all kind of basic, basically the same. It was a frog, or it was a solid color popper diver whatever or i think like dave whitlock's fruit cocktail was like the most you know extravagant looking thing in the in the bin as far as color goes so when i started making these things well i wanted all sorts of color patterns and bars and dots and spots and mm -hmm. blends and so i started doing all these you know gradients and different colors again keeping the the shapes very basic at that time because it, it you know uh, it was still fairly utilitarian mm -hmm. it still needed to do exactly what i need you know what what i was looking for it to do but but i i wanted it to look a different you know a, a little bit different than what what was going on i just wanted more options so i think what really caught everybody's eye were these crazy colors and blends and 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 all these patterns that you weren't able to buy mm. You know, at a gotcha. at a regular shop, you know, mass produced. Yep. Yep. Okay. So and then from there, yeah, I started making everything else. You know, birds and frogs and different shapes that do different things in the water and different noises, different sounds, oh, whatever. Right. right. Where can you? Um, where would be a good place to see some of the? I mean, what what are some of the other crazier things you've you know since then tied? You know, including bird. Can you kind of see some of those online anywhere? With, some of that stuff you've tied? Um, yeah, my Instagram account has uh, a pretty wide array of stuff on it. I mean, I've got a website where you can, you know, you can definitely purchase things. Uh, okay. But my Instagram, if you just wanted to scroll through and see all the, all the things, because a lot of stuff I get contacted for is, um, you know, not things that I would make on a mass production type level. So it's things that, you know, people contact me and say, hey, I'm looking to do... X, Y, and Z, can you do it? And I'll throw photos of that stuff up on Instagram. It's not necessarily something that I would have listed on the website. So that's probably the best place to see the more creative that's right. things. I see. So, 
So if I wanted you, yeah, if I called you up and want, and I, I'm really looking for a, um, a, a, a swallow looking fly or something like that, you could, uh, potentially for the right amount of money, tie, tie that up. Absolutely. Oh, cool. Absolutely. All yep. right. What, um, so the tattoo is, is kind of interesting, you know, you made that transition. What's the, are there any similarities between what you do now and when you think back to being the tattoo artist? I mean, other than just uh, the the art aspect of it, I mean, there's really, I get, that would be the big connection is just the yeah. art. You know, you're yeah. looking at things. Tattooing is, is interesting because it, it's a 2D thing, right? So you're drawing, but really you're drawing on a 3D surface. So you've got these multiple elements that you've got to keep in mind your you know the the body shape and the curve of the musculature system and things like that you've got to plan your tattoo and your illustration for that uh to to fit that body part appropriately otherwise it just looks like somebody you know licked it it, you know you you, putting a sticker on there so i think a lot of the flies that that i make and and a lot of the flies that are just made in general these days are uh, you know, it, it's a multi-dimensional thing. You've got all these elements that you're combining to create this, you know, cool-looking, functioning bug. And and I think that a lot of flies these days imitate, you know, they're, they're made to more imitate lore action than they are anything. But then again, yeah. flies are lures anyway, so it doesn't really matter what you call it. That's yeah. all semantics. Just they are what they are. Um, so so you're you're, you know, the... From a creative perspective, you're you're thinking about all of these elements at the same time and combining them and creating these things. Um, especially if you're not following a recipe, you know you've got to kind of have a vision of of what it is that you're looking to to create. You know what what's the problem that you're looking to solve? And I think tattooing was the same thing. If somebody would come into you and say, "Hey, I want to represent." blah 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 on my arm well that's a problem from an artistic standpoint that you have to solve for that individual how do you take these images and turn them into these ideas and then make it work on the body at the same time Hmm. and i think that you know flies are the same thing you go out on the water you experience a problem or a situation and then you go home and you look at your pile of collected material, whether it be natural or synthetic, and then you say, okay, how do I solve that problem? And then you go to work. Gotcha. And, you know, again, thinking uh, with tattoo and I guess both fly tying and tattoo, uh, being a tattoo artist, I mean, was there anything that you said no to or when people come in and they want a tattoo do you pretty much have you done it, anything that people say can you do it all or, you know how does that oh, work? No, I, I definitely um I, I think that you have a responsibility as a tattooer to um to let people know if uh if their idea will work won't work no. but i also think you have a little bit of a moral i you know a, a um yeah a moral ideal too that you have to kind of uphold you That's know right. if somebody came in wanted something that was ridiculous that yep. you knew that they were going to regret later in life. <laughs> like I think a, that you like have a, a, like a, uh, whatever, right? I mean, it could be a swastika. It could be some, uh, just a naked person or something like that. Exactly. I mean, something or, or even a placement on the body. I mean, I'm covered in tattoos, right? Are you? But how, if how I many were, tattoos do you have? I have no idea. <laughs> no kidding. 
it's I've got one. It's just not all quite connected yet. Oh wow, you know? cool. Um, <laughs> I, I I mean I've got a I, I'm covered. I'm sleeved. Yeah. My yeah. chest is done. I got stuff all over my legs. Um, but the thing is, when I when I put a, a long sleeve shirt on, and and you know if I'm in a formal situation, yeah. suit and tie, you don't have them on. Nobody your would ever know that I have tattoos all over me. And I think that that's an important. Yeah thing even though they're becoming more and more accepted these days yeah there's still an old school element to a lot of business situations where they are frowned upon and i think that you know as a i mean i'm not a tattooist anymore i don't i don't tattoo anymore i haven't tattooed in eight years Mm -hmm. but but when i was active in that i really felt that it was my responsibility to let people know like hey you know yeah we all want it to be accepted everywhere, but it's not. Nope. And that's the reality of it. So if you want to have a career and you want to be professional, you've got to keep that stuff in mind, uh, you know, as a, as a consumer of tattoos, but also, or a collector of tattoos, but also as somebody that's doing tattoos, I think you need to let people know, you know, hey, yep. you should think about this, especially younger people. I mean, we had a lot of guys coming in or girls or whatever, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, think they know everything. And, uh, you know, I I want a big whatever on the side of my neck. Well, no dumbass, you don't, because (laughs) that will ruin your life. Yep. Yep. No, that's a true, yeah. It's funny, I I don't have any tattoos, but I've all, I've kind of, you know, I kind of feel like it'd be cool if something came to my mind that was really that cool that, you know, I'd want to throw it on for nothing else than, you know, to kind of, uh, to experience to see how much pain there is in it. You know, is there, is there a, uh, is it pretty much something you get used to when you, or is it? No, man, they're uncomfortable. They are. Yeah, they always are. As many as I have, they still, every one of them still sucks. I'm not going to lie. Gotcha. They, uh, and depending on where on the body you get them, they can hurt significantly. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're not. Yeah, I haven't been tattooed in a long time because, you know, I think about it. And as much as I'd like some more tattoos, I'm kind of like, oh, man, it really sucks to get tattooed. It no hurts. Yeah, there and then you go. you've got the healing process. And, well, think about it, right? So you're getting a needle stuck a few layers into your skin over and over and over Jeez. tens of thousands of times. Yep. It's kind of yep. like getting... If you took a piece of sandpaper and kind of rubbed your your hand for a little while with it, that's kind of like what getting a tattoo is like. Wow. Okay. It's really, it's a controlled abrasion, more or less. Yep. So, you know, after the first few minutes, you get this endorphin rush, and you're like, yeah, this isn't so bad. And then like half an hour in, you want to cut whatever body part it is that you're getting worked on off because it just sucks. <laughs> and the bigger they are, the more detailed they are, of course, the longer they take. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uncomfortable, That's but it's good. worth it. Yeah. yeah if you're in. The, the, um, yeah, it's, it's the tattooing. It's interesting. That's the cool thing about doing this show is it I, you know, you kind of start talking about one thing and it, it, it'd be really interesting to dig in more. You know, I, I've got all these questions, but I did want to just touch on, you know, get into a little bit of the, uh, kind of the meat of, of the, the topics we're going to check into today. And, and one of them was just on tying, you know, the, the deer hair poppers. And I've got, I've had some questions from the, you know, some listeners out there and things I want to get into, but maybe you can just start us off first. Can you just describe how you tie a popper? Is that something you could do on via audio pretty easy and maybe how 
like what you do that makes it a good flyer? Maybe you can just think about somebody new to it. Can you just describe that process? Yeah, yeah. So, so I tie deer hair, deer hair flies, deer hair bass bugs um, for my top water stuff. I use deer hair for a lot of different things, streamer heads and stuff. But deer hair poppers uh, or divers or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's there's a few basic things that you have to keep in mind. So we'll go right with material itself first. So there's a couple of things that are really important. Number one, you want a really good, solid, sturdy hook. Um, I use a lot of A-Rex hooks. They're just a, a hook that I really enjoy tying on. They fit my, my style of tying well. Um, they've got a nice hook gap, which is really important on a top butterfly. You want enough gaps so that when that fish comes up, you're not going to be missing fish. Um, thread. Thread is very important when tying deer hair flies. I use all gel spun thread. It's uh, it's very strong. It's a thinner thread. Uh, it's slippery, so it can work through the hair quite easily, um, which brings us to hair, of course. So I'm using all deer belly hair for bass bugs. Um, you can use body hair, but body hair tends to be a little bit softer. Uh, there also tends to be a lot more under fur in body hair. It makes really good streamer heads, like a muddler head, body hair, uh, when you want that water to really absorb in there. Deer belly hair, because it's a little bit coarser, uh, tends to throw a little bit more water from it. It doesn't absorb as fast. Um, so hair, thread, you always want to tie on a thread base. That's something that I wish I had known uh, really early on when I first started tying these. What happens is if you try to put hair on a bare metal shank, you've got nothing for that hair to grab onto. So two or three fish later, the top of your fly is going to be on the side of your fly, and you know uh, everything kind of gets twisted and doesn't uh, doesn't hold together well. So durability, I think, is something that's really really important when you're you're building these too. And I'm I'm a wholehearted believer in adding glue to my flies as I work. So when I'm doing poppers, I use, or, or divers or whatever, I use a, a technique called stacking, which is where you work from the bottom of the hook shank to the top of the hook shank, and it allows you to control the quantity of hair, it allows you to control all the color and your design, your patterns, dots, things like that, barring. So in between those stacks of hair, I add a little drop of head cement each time. It allows a slow dry, and it also doesn't weaken the hair at all, where I've seen people in classes that I teach, um, they immediately go to break out like a super glue or zap a gap, oh, yeah. things like that. The problem with that is Dude. it gives you no working time, yep. Yep. Uh, and it also makes the, the deer hair very, very, very brittle at the base, which means a few fish later, and you can yep. be breaking off the hair. Is stacking, um, you know, is is it kind of like stacking versus spinning deer hair? Because you can also tie it on the right and spin it like 360 around the hook shank. Is that something you don't really do? I don't spin hair. Um, and the reason that I don't spin hair is you're kind of throwing all of your control to... Um, it, it, it doesn't... You're losing all of your control of that hair when you're spinning. Um and, and what I mean by that is the theory of spinning is that you take one big solid clump, you make a few wraps, and then you continue to wrap through it, spreading that hair 
evenly around the hook shank top and bottom. It's never, I don't care how good you are at spinning hair, it is never perfectly even all the way around that hook shank. You're always going to have one spot that has a little bit yeah. more hair than the rest of it. Yeah. So by stacking hair, I know exactly how much hair, I mean, give or take, it's not an exact science anyway, because I'm not yeah. breaking out a little, you know, a little drug calculate, you know, a little uh, <laughs> drug scale and measuring each clump of hair or anything like that sure. or counting hair. So you're you're guesstimating. Um, if I have three pencil thicknesses on the bottom of my bug, I want three pencil thicknesses, give or take, on the top of my bug. Okay. okay. Um, so so to do that, you know, by by stacking, it it gives me that control, so I can get that that symmetry, top and bottom, or side to side if you're you know changing the design and you're doing a side to side stack mm -hmm. because that's something that can be done also which makes for a really cool effect um so yeah so control the hair uh you want to be able to know exactly how much you're using um you know the thread good quality hair you want to be able to brush that hair out with um i use a flea comb uh, -huh. uh all hair has a little bit of underfur, and what that does is if you're working with it and you're not combing that out, your thread catches, uh, you can fold hair over, it just makes a mess. And then you don't know sometimes that you folded all that hair over until you're done, and then you go to trim, and then you nick your thread because you didn't get your thread down as close to the to the shank as oh, you thought right. you did. Or do you? Is it How important is it to make sure to keep your, your, under, your base layer over that... Um you know, uh, your first thread wraps kind of as thin as possible. Is that pretty important? What do you mean by, uh, uh, so, so sure. when you're, so you put your thread base on and then, you know, some people, especially new tires tend to maybe make their flies too bulky and they kept, you know, and it's harder and harder. Is that the same with when you're putting that deer hair on, you want to keep your, just your hook shank as thin as possible or does it matter? You can just tie it on over a thick piece of, you know, if you had, well, yeah, here's the, the way that I teach, doing these and uh you know i don't know um it, it, it's the best way for me and it's the you know everybody you you ask 15 different guys that that specialize in deer hair or whatever they're going to yeah. give you 15 different ways that that they tie so i make my thread bases uh i do a little bit at a time so if I know I'm just going to be doing, you know, one little section, I'll do maybe my thread base will be half an inch wide. And I crisscross my wraps. So I do, I go down uh, and then I go back and then come back again to the middle. And then I'll start my, my hair in the middle of that thread base. But what that does by crisscrossing those wraps, I can still see a little bit of hook shank in between those wraps of thread. Yeah. So when I get my hair on that, I put my glue on, and then I use the, the fugly packer to, to pack everything back. I'm packing that thread base sectionally with the hair at the same time. Okay. And by doing that, all that thread is compressing and kind of pinching all that hair as I'm packing it back, which just creates for an even more durable bug. Hmm. There you go. And then I advance thread and I do it again. Gotcha. So I'll make individual thread bases. Let's, you know, the average fly, you know, like, like a size one bug, which I'm making actually today. I've got three dozen of these things to do today. 
you know, I, it's three stacks, three separate stacks of hair, which means three separate thread bases as I work down the shank. Okay. And, and where do you, um, where do you get all your, your material? I, mean, I had a couple of questions from people, you know, as far as, or, and not only where do you get them, but how do you choose? How do you make sure you're getting, cause that's a tough thing, right? If you're buying online, especially do, do you buy online or do you, are you checking everything over? Well, I get, I mean, I, I buy from big wholesalers. Um, you know, this is my full-time business. So I, you know, that's the only yep. way that you can do anything with this, but so I bring it all in and I hand sort it all. I, I basically, I get whatever materials in that I'm getting and then I dump it all out on a floor and I pick through it all because I sell all the materials that I use also on my website. So all the deer hair that I use personally is also for sale on my website. And all of that is hand selected by me uh, before it goes out the door. So if I know, you know, somebody's making big bass bugs, then they get you know, the best of the hair that I've got. Okay. The stuff that doesn't pass that quality control uh, for me, you know, to be to be sold, I use some of that stuff for different things, you know. I, I can sort it out and say, okay, I need to make some muddlers next week. This hair is a little short. It'll be fine for that. Yep. Or, you know, I've got an obsession with Atlantic salmon bombers. I use them for bass fishing also. Oh, cool. So I'll use some smaller hair, you know, for that kind of stuff. And then all the bigger stuff, all the really nice long stuff goes to my customers. Gotcha. Or if I'm doing gotcha. really monster bass bugs, then, you know, I'll use some of that for me also. Okay. And, and is, um, I'm not sure, is his hairline, is that where you, where you get, I mean, I think in the past you've gotten it from them. Is that one of the wholesalers? Yep. Hairline is definitely a company that I do a ton of business with. Um, there's also, there's also others. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you there's a lot out there. Can't put on, yeah. There's a lot of them. And, you know, there's also different, you know, different avenues that you can look at also. It doesn't necessarily have to be a fly fishing or a fly tying oh, sure. Sure. that you do with, you know, gotcha. there's uh, lots of stuff out there. Yeah. Lots. Of, okay. And then, uh, just before we move on here, I just want to touch on the, um, on the hook. Is there a, a hook number? I guess it depends on the type of fishing you're doing, but, um, as far as a model number of the hooks and then, and then also the exact, the thread, exact type of thread you use size and stuff. Yeah. So I use, uh, the A-Rex hooks. I use a lot of the, um, TP 610. Uh, it's, a. Uh, it's almost like it reminds me of like a Gamagatsu B10S, yep. but it doesn't have quite the upturn on the point. Um, and that was my biggest problem with those hooks for deer hair flies. Uh, that upturned point was too much. It, it closed the gap a little bit too much for bass bugs. It works great for streamers, um, but the TP610 from A-Rex is a great universal hook. I use it for all the deer hair stuff plus all, mo most of my streamers are are tied on that hook also it's a it's a heavy wire it's super sharp super durable and i mean and I, i've caught everything on those those hooks i've never had any breakage issues and i mean i tie flies for people all over the world chasing all sorts of stuff it's just a great solid hook okay uh, and as far as thread goes um for the hair work itself i use vivas uh, GSP, mm -hmm. and it's a 200 denier thread that I use for that. Okay, cool. If I'm making okay. really small bass bugs, like super tiny size, you know, uh, like four and below, I, I'll 
I'll lower that that thread count a little bit to to like 150. Okay. Uh, but most of the stuff I don't normally tie smaller than like a size one hook, so 200 yeah. is perfect. Oh, perfect. And yeah, and I did listen to this is a while back. Um, not sure if you remember, you did a podcast with the uh, I think it's the fly fishing consultant and. Uh, and, oh, Rob. Uh, yeah, yeah, Rob. Exactly. Yeah, who I've I've had on as well. We've chatted, but. Uh, it was pretty good though because you went into a lot of Heroi picture brain on all the little details of gear. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can listen because you talk a lot about the specifics of even to what vice you use and all that. And we're not going to have time to get into all that today, so um, you know folks can check that out and any other uh, links or resources we mentioned here. Um, but I did want to get into uh, you know the bass stuff because that's another big thing that you've. I mean, you've got some some videos out there and, and I guess I'm not sure how many of them are bass videos, but you've got, you know, a channel and, and some things going, but you know, just before we jump into that, I just want to touch base and make sure on the deer hair, did we miss anything as far as, do you want to like walk through more on tying that popper? Or do you think pretty much, is there a video or resource out there where they might be able to, to know how to do it correctly? So I've got a, uh, an instructional DVD on my website that's available that goes through Every bit of deer hair technique you will ever need to know to tie just about any bass bug out there. It's it's a diver-oriented fly, uh, but the techniques to tie a diver and a popper are exactly the same. It's just all about manipulating that hair properly on the hook. So that's available on my site. Um, I also, I've got a, um, I don't know if this is a good time to mention it or yep, not, but I've got, a, I've got a book coming out oh, cool. uh, this year. Uh, should be, I'm told November is when it's going to be released, but nice. we'll see. Um, it's got 42 step-by-steps of, of my bass flies in it, plus, uh, like almost 150, maybe more, uh, flies from other bass or warm water fly tires from all around the globe in it. Oh, nice. Um, it's it a huge project that I've been working on for quite some time. Uh, so that, that'll be out too. So Perfect. that's got real detailed instruction on how to do all sorts of different deer hair flies in it. Okay, cool. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, just to, uh, you know, this obviously, let's see, well, actually, you know, by the time this episode is out, we'll be pretty close to that date. So I'll make sure to, to have a link to that. And, and who are some of the, I mean, I was thinking about that earlier, you know, as far as, you know, who you learn from, I mean, some of the other big names. Are there a couple of people you might note that if somebody wanted to maybe, you know, learn from some other folks out there that are doing good things, anybody you would note here? I mean, you know, there's so many good flat tires out there now. Um, from a from a bass fishing perspective, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would look at uh, Ryan Gold does some really nice bass bugs. Um You've got uh, Matt Bennett, who ties all sorts of really great bass flies. Paul Beal's doing some good stuff. He runs a, a website called Frankenfly. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, Sam Looper, uh, Rich Scrollis, Mike Schmidt, even though some of those guys specialize in more trout-oriented stuff, mm-hmm. predator flies are predator flies. If I can catch a brown trout on it, I can catch a smallmouth on it. I could probably catch a pike on it also. Gotcha. So they all kind of relate, you know. Um, there's, yeah, there's so many. Um, you know, uh, um, and are all those, are all those, uh, those people you mentioned, most of them, I mean, pretty much everybody has a YouTube Vimeo or something out there, or is there a good mix of different types of, 
you know, resources. Yeah, I mean, most of those, most of them can all be found on on social media platforms. I mean, some of the guys like like Rich Rollis has a great book. Um, he's also got a YouTube, you know, channel with all sorts of videos. You know, like Gunnar Brammer, he's another one. He, he he's he's tying some streamers that are yeah. just, you yeah, know, Gun- wow, Gunner. you know, super talented guy. Yeah. Uh, there's so many. Um, yeah, so many. Yeah. It, it's you know just. Any fly show, you go to any fly show and you walk around, and I mean, you know, you're going to see your your old timers that have been tying the same dry flies since they started 60 years ago, and then you're going to see <laughs> a lot of young bloods that are coming up through that are just, you know, no rules, no nothing. They're just making stuff, yeah. and uh, you know, those are the people that I like to pay attention to. That's I mean, right. you're never too good to learn from somebody else doing something, even if it's just a new idea or, you know, maybe they're using an old material in a different way. I mean, that's kind of how we all do it at this point anyway, right? It's all a little bit recycling. There's very few things left that are going to be brand spanking new that nobody's thought of before. Um, You know, Bob Popovics and I were talking about that at one of the shows, you know, I I had had this idea and I I thought, you know, like, oh man, nobody's (laughs) done this. And then he showed me a picture in his sketchbook from like 1970, like before I was born. And he had that idea or, or a very similar idea all drawn out. You know, if you're out fishing long enough, you know, we're all going to experience similar things, which means we're all going to go home and try to figure out how to solve that. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, that's the thing, I guess, with social media, right, is is it's not really necessarily about who creates it anymore. It's about who popularizes it is is kind of what it is to me, which is sad in a way, but it just is what it is. Yeah, well, and that's what makes your stuff unique, like you said. I mean, you could, you know, add in some different spotting or, you know, your pattern. I mean, it's all, that's, there's definitely going to be hard-pressed to find somebody with that exact pattern. Well, I guess people could copy you, right? You got the extreme versions. Yeah, I mean, and that happens. You know, if you put it out there for people to see, it's it's going to be it's going to be imitated, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. you know, and, and here's the thing: is I, I tie old flies. I mean, you know, I've created a bunch of stuff on my own, also, but but there's nothing new necessarily about you know what it is that that I'm doing. I mean, bass bugs have been around forever in a day, mm-hmm. so. I'm just taking those old deer hair flies and I'm breathing some new life into them and doing some different things with them. And, and just, you know, generally speaking, just having fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's, I guess that's kind of important for everybody to remember, right? Like that's none right. of this stuff is, is original anymore. Uh, We're all just kind of building off of one another instead of yeah. slashing their throats. We should be complimenting each other and, and working together to solve these issues. You know, totally. Are you still, uh, uh, you know, with the fly tying now that you're, you said you got three dozen flies, is it still, is it still a lot of fun or do you find it's becoming more work as you, as time goes on or do you ever get burnt out? I mean, you know, I, I think it's important no matter what you do for a living that you step away from it occasionally. I mean, I love what I do. I, I really do. I, I wake up in the morning and I mean, there are some days that I'm more excited to sit down at my vice for, you know, 12 or 13 hours than others. But I, uh, generally speaking, I, I still enjoy, I still enjoy making flies for, for people, you know, especially a lot of my customers send me photos and, and they're super stoked when they catch, yep. you know, some giant fish, whatever it may be. I do a lot of destination stuff for people. 
so that's pretty exciting because you know I'm I don't I don't have ten or fifteen thousand bucks yep. to go waste on, uh, <laughs> on some exotic fly fishing trip. So I live a little bit vicariously through some of them, which which is pretty exciting. Uh, yeah. and it's just cool to see what your you know what your ideas can catch around the globe. What's the uh, so, any, uh, any species that come to mind that are kind of uh, you know uh, kind of a random or different species? Well, you know, I, I've uh, I've seen my customers catch all sorts of stuff. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say anything that's out of the ordinary. I mean, the destinations seem to be all the same these days. You know, people are going to Mongolia and they're catching huge taimen and yep. and a more pike and and cool. uh, you know, I I do a lot for. I mean, I I, I love catching peacock bass, but yeah. I just go down to Florida to do it. But you know these these folks that are that are going into the jungle and catching these monster peacocks i mean that's always fun to see i just did a, a huge order for a dude that's going to brazil and uh i mean that's pretty exciting mm-hmm. not that that's mm-hmm. out of the reach for you know for everybody but yeah, still, it, is, it is for a lot of people though yeah it's a lot of money to yeah. go fishing <laughs> yeah you know exactly no i'm I, i'm I'm working on now, uh, kind of a like a hosted trip, uh, sort of you know, kind of getting some of that started. And yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely not uh, not cheap, you know, doing all that stuff. You know, getting and it's food. amazing the hoops that you have to jump through between visas yeah. and the list of inoculations that you need, and yep. some of the places. Like I was invited to one lodge where you're out fishing and and you've got armed guards with you fishing with you wow. so that you're safe wow. i'm like you know what i'm good I, is, it, is that like in africa or something or where's where that it was uh this lodge uh way out in in colombia oh, they right. were like they've got uh guards that go with you and they're at the lodge and stuff to make sure that you're safe i'm like you know Damn. i don't know that i need that in my life no no, that's yeah, that's pretty. Uh, yeah, although we do have some random stuff here in the U.S. That that's yeah, that's pretty extreme. Well, uh, yeah, again, I, I just had um, you know, going back to your DVD, you mentioned this. I want to hit on this so I don't miss it because uh, Steve yeah. uh, Steve B in our in our members group, he was uh, he he made a comment. He was he wanted to know when you're. I think he said, uh, let's see here. Yeah, just on releasing new DVDs. Are, are you have plans? To re- and I know it's your YouTube channel. I think you haven't put anything out super recently. Do you have plans for more videos coming out, or what, what's your plan there? So I had I had a total of three uh, three instructional DVDs out. Um, I took two of them out of the mix uh, recently because the book has. All my energy for the last like two years has been put into into writing this this book. So I took those other two DVDs kind of out of the loop because there's now there's updated versions of of those flies in the book. So I didn't want to keep circulating that with with these new you know kind of new updated versions coming out. Um, as far as so, so there's still the one DVD, which is kind of the base of everything, right? Okay. So that's the that's the deer hair, the stacked deer hair diver video. Yep. Um, as far as the YouTube goes, you know, I would like to think that at some point I will maybe add some more video stuff, but it's uh, first of all, I'm a terrible. 
I'm terrible at uh, at editing videos. Right. But not only that, I don't have a lot of fancy. I mean, I got a couple of GoPros, right? So I, I thought I had all these great ideas, like, okay, I'm going to do these videos where I tie this fly, and, and then I go out and I fish it, and I show you how to fish it, and this and But my yep. biggest problem, and I do it all the time, I can't tell you how many days that I've gone out with a GoPro strapped to my chest or my head or whatever, and I'm catching all these fish, and I'm having a great time, and the entire time I forgot to turn the damn thing on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm terrible, absolutely terrible at that. Uh, maybe one day soon, uh, you know, I'll I'll start doing that kind of thing again and, and adding more videos. I know I get a lot of I get a lot of messages about that, like, "Hey, love your YouTube yeah. videos. You do some more." Um, but again, all that energy went into you know, went into writing this book for everybody, um, which hope, I hope people love, you know, I, I put everything I know about fishing for bass, you know, small mouth and large mouth into this thing. That's awesome. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, maybe one day, maybe one day, but no, no official DVDs, not, not in the near future. They're so expensive to do. And, uh, unbelievably time consuming to make a, a dvd like that okay yeah and i was just looking at other i think it was uh, felix uh borenstein uh said uh when are you directing your first your your next movie so i think i guess he was on the same lines they're thinking about just your your dvd stuff but yeah it sounds like you've got some good resources out there and there's not a a critical thing i mean you know obviously you know, i've had colin McEwen on who's you know the new fly fisher and he was telling me when he does his videos you know his you know tv show God, I think he spends something like, you know, two weeks out there, you know, just to get the video they need to, to do the show for a, you know, a 30 minute clip or an hour. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. a, ton, it's a ton of work. And, you know, obviously you, you're tying <laughs> 13 hours tying your flies. You probably don't have a ton of extra time to do the editing, which I know is, is a ton of work. I get out and fish one day a week. Um, and the other, you know, one one day a week is, is household stuff and, and spending time with my other half. And, and then, you know, one day I disappear for, for the afternoon and I go fish. But the other five days are spent literally morning to night, you know, just working and, and time flies. So editing video is unbelievably time consuming, especially if you're not good at it. Yeah. And I'm terrible. It's- uh, and, and, you know, and speaking from the, the, from a perspective, like I've been in, in several little short fly fishing films. Uh, I, I just did one the beginning of the year with, um, uh, it was done for Southern culture on the oh, fly. You have, so I had, that's on your, well, it's on your main website, I think now, right? On the main page. Yeah, yeah. And it was less than five minutes, right? I think it was four minutes and change or something. Yeah. So yeah. to do that yeah. video was was like almost three days of of filming. Damn. So to put something together like that, it's you know, I like the the Bloomberg video that was out a few years ago, that was like eight and a half minutes. And that was three solid morning to night with equipment that I've never even seen before. <laughs> like robotic arms and, and little like all sorts of crazy stuff. Wow. Like drones everywhere. Like I, the amount of work that goes into it, it's mind boggling. Really, it's That's so cool. far beyond my yeah. abilities. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put a yeah. I'll put links to those videos because I, I want to take a look at it too. The the Bloomberg and some of the other stuff in the show notes. Um, 
Well, I want to jump into the and change the table here just into smallmouth bass, uh, you know, for a little bit, yep. just so we don't miss it. And maybe you can just start us off talking about, you know, just basically how you catch smallmouth bass on your your home your home water, and 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 what was your home your river or lake that you fish mostly? Oh, uh, the Squahari Creek is is really my my home waters. But I've got being in upstate New York, I've got some some pretty cool rivers that are relatively close. Um, you know, I fish the Mohawk River a lot. I fish the Hudson River a lot. I'm also near the headwaters of the Susquehanna River. Uh, but the Schoharie is really my, my base okay. of uh, fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So yeah what, it's, it's an awesome little river. So maybe just take us to the river, and I'm not sure. And I've actually seen it. was pretty cool. I was looking at... Um, I guess I'm not sure if you still have it, but the boat, I think it's the LT-10. It's kind of a... It looks like a mix between a drift boat and a kayak or a canoe and... Are you doing oh, yeah. mostly? Are you out in a boat mostly? You want, just take us to the river and talk talk about how you get into fish there, smallmouth. So I, I do both. I fish. Um, actually, I've got a, a, a couple of boats. So the LT10, the, the custom canoe LT10, is is my all time favorite boat. It's uh, you know a small skiff. Um, it's kind of like a a canoe that's souped up on steroids that yep. you can stand yep. up, walk around on, and two people can fish from stable all day, which is just killer. So when I'm on the bigger rivers, you know, I'll run that all over the place, and, uh, you know, we're just looking for habitat, really. You know, not, not everywhere is going to hold smallmouth. So you're you're looking for, depending on the season, uh, I mean, a good place to start on any river is any kind of riprap or rocky areas, boulders, things like that. So if I'm on one of the smaller streams, like I went out yesterday, I, I fished for a few hours yesterday afternoon with a buddy of mine, and we were just on foot uh, in the Squahari Creek, actually. So one of the things that, that I do, and it's the greatest resource ever for anglers, is Google Earth. So we will pick an area, like let's say, you know, we want to fish the creek today. And, you know, obviously I know the river kind of like the back of my hand at this point. Although, you know, what's the old saying? You know, you never fish the same river twice, right? Right. But I will go on Google Earth and I'll just search and I'll pick an area that I think looks real fishy. So it's a, the Squahari is a smaller creek. Um, it's still, you know, it's still fairly wide in spots and it gets some very deep areas. You know, there'll be sections that are 20 feet deep in, in certain areas, but a lot of it is very weightable. So I look for pools and I look for rocky runs that, that dump into pools, especially in the summertime. Those, you know, smallmouth bass are more of a cold water oriented bass than they are a warm water, like a largemouth. So I'm looking for in the summer, I'm looking for areas that I think that the ox, the dissolved oxygen levels are going to be higher. So that could be anywhere where there's, um, a lot of surface commotion from shallow, you know, shallow, rocky, bouldery areas that are going to be dumping into deeper shadowy areas. So like yesterday was a perfect example. We, we picked this spot that's got this long stretch of really fast moving shallow water. And then it dumps out against these cliffs and it's about 10 feet deep, uh, at, at the deeper end of that, that pool, but it's all these shale uh, shelves and and on the one side and then 
as you work towards that, it's all these big boulders and, and crazy rocks, and it's just perfect smallmouth habitat. You've got that fast, cold water coming in, high dissolved oxygen, but it's also a buffet because everything that's getting swept out of the rocks is being brought down to these waiting fish. So it, it's, it's also a great area for... Um, for bait fish to be hanging out at, at the ends of these pools. It's also a great area for crayfish. And in, in the Schoharie, uh, helgramites and crayfish are the main food source for our bass. So I go out and I look for areas that will be holding a lot of crayfish uh, and then just kind of pick and choose and work around from there. Okay. All right. And, and then once you get in there, as far as that, maybe you can just talk about a couple of the, your top fly patterns you use for, for smallmouth. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it, that, that really depends on, on the river that I'm fishing and the situation. But like yeah. I said, the area is really, uh, it, it's, you, you can step on the bottom of the river and when you're walking in it, literally, it looks like it's alive. There's so many crayfish scurrying oh, wow. everywhere. So that's always a first choice is, is a crayfish pattern. And I use, in there, I use uh, a fly that I, that I made, you know, a while ago, created a few years ago called the Jiggy Craw. And basically that thing imitates a bass jig, uh, a skirted crayfish jig. Uh, it's got a rattle in it. It's got lots of rubber legs. It uses my creature bodies, so it's got that realistic profile of a crayfish. Um, that is my number one go-to crayfish fly on, on the Schoharie Creek. Uh, and I also use a lot of uh, a fly called the Devil's Drifter, which is a, a Helgramite fly that I created a few years ago also. And again, it uses those pre, pre-cut bodies that I make. Uh, it's a Helgramite body. Uh, those are my two... Like if I'm if I want to go out and I want a streamer fish, and things aren't working well, and I know that they're targeting you know other things like crayfish or hogamites, so those are the two flies that I jump to. Okay. Yesterday they okay. were eating bait fish. They were very 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 aggressive, and they were chasing everything that moved. So we were throwing streamers yesterday. Um, actually, there's the streamer that I was catching all the fish on yesterday is a, a new streamer that's in the book that uh has not been put out there yet oh, nice. so there you go so yeah we'll have, we have to get the book to check it out <laughs> yeah man good stuff in that <laughs> nice no that's that's cool all right so you got a, a couple of five i guess let's take that uh the what was it called the jiggly uh, cr- uh craw or what was the, uh, the first yeah, jiggy craw yep. yeah jiggy craw um so if you have that one on you're 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 they're on the craw fit what's and you know how are you how are you say you have that pool you're dropping and you got a riffle going into this deeper pool that might get up to 10 feet how are you fishing that are you um you could talk us through that how how you how you get into a fish so normally when i get to a spot i mean you know obviously like like we talked about i'm picking out an area that i think looks pretty fishy i will take a look around and i'll see if there's anything obvious you know do i see fish busting on the top do i see them chasing schools of bait do i see them uh you know do i see crayfish all over the place and then i i basically i start out with a fly that i just 
that I look at and I get excited to fish. It could be any kind of confidence fly whatsoever. And it could imitate anything unless there's something obvious. You know, if I see a bunch of, a bunch of bass chasing around bait fish, you know, then I know that I need to have a streamer on of some sort, some kind of bait fish imitation. Uh, and if that doesn't work after a while, uh, then I, you know, make, uh, make decisions from there as to what to go with next. Uh, yesterday, it just happened to be that we saw, when we got down there, we saw bass circling around and we saw them chasing baitfish schools. So we knew we had to start throwing, uh, you know, some baitfish. And then when that stopped, because, you know, not all the fish in any one given body of water are doing the same thing at the same time. So things change throughout the course of the day, weather patterns, whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden the bait fish weren't working anymore. And then we switched over to crayfish yesterday and we continued catching fish. Um, but I think that, that a lot of, a lot of anglers forget to just look around and observe a little bit before they make any kind of decision. And people tend to change their flies a little bit too often. In my opinion, also, I think that if you get to, the river and you see you kind of get an idea of what's going on and oh man you make six casts and it's just not working well chances are it's probably not only the fly that's not appropriate it could just be your presentation is inappropriate so that's something that i think i and i'm guilty of it also i i uh you get into a into a groove or or a rut of some sort. You go out, you cast, and mindlessly you're retrieving that fly back the same way every every single time. In your head, you're going, "All right, I need to you know jerk my rod tip to the left a little bit more, or to the right, or whatever." But a lot of the time, you just kind of it, it becomes almost a muscle memory thing. You just cast, retrieve, cast, retrieve, repeat, repeat, repeat. And you forget to make those subtle little changes. Maybe you give a little bit longer pause in between or, you know, not enough anglers when I, when I go out with people, I don't know how this started or when this started. Um, but people cast a streamer and put their rod tip down towards the water and retrieve only using the fly line. Hmm. Well, we're, we're, we're bass fishing, man. So when, when you go out and you bass fish, you, you know, turn on ESPN or whatever on a Saturday morning and watch what a bass, you know, a bass pro does with their rod. It's, it's being, the tip is being used to create action all over the place. And I think that's something that's really important for fly anglers also is, you know, our job as a fly angler is to give that fly life. It's not a crankbait. It's not going to wiggle all over the place on its own. We have to do that. So in order to do that, you need to use your rod tip. You need to use your line. You need to, you know, control that, that bait. And I think that that's something that, you know, you really, really, really need to pay attention to to catch more fish. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a good tip. And also with your, some of your flies you do, right, you actually you know, however you design them, they, they might look wounded and there's some other things you do. Do you typically, I mean, are there any flies that you tie that you might mention here that are similar to that, that, uh, well, I guess the craw, crawfish pattern might be a little bit different, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, head shape is, is really important on, on streamer design because how you, how you shape that, that head will, 
will control how that fly lies in the water. And when you strip it in, it also controls what that fly does. So the, the bait fish that I was using yesterday. So I have a bigger fly called the slot mop that, that we've been, uh, I've been tying for years and years and years. It was oriented originally towards uh, big brown trout. And then it went into pike and musky and things like that. Now there's a smaller version that, that I'll have available soon. It's, it's in the, it's in the book. Uh, it's a four inch version. It's made out of craft fur with a deer hair head, but it's got this lip on the front of it. That's made out of deer hair. It's, it's tied on a jig hook and it looks like a crankbait bill. Like it's uh, a diving lip essentially. And what that fly does in the water, when you do a jerk strip style retrieve is it wiggles all over the place and it dives down. It's weighted. It's got, uh, rubber legs and stuff on it. So there's lots of action, lots of motion, but, but that the front of that fly forces that fly to wiggle extremely erratically all over the place. And it just, it's a trigger. It just drives those fish crazy. I caught a bunch of fish on it yesterday and then unfortunately sacrificed it to the bottom of the river <laughs> at one point. So yep. that was, that was the end of that for the day. Gotcha. But you know, you can do that with all sorts of different things, you know, a, a muddler, like a, like a fathead deceiver. It's a, hmm. a muddler that I tie for, for, you know, bass and pike and stuff. It's, you know, it's got a very specific action in the water because of that head shape, that big round kind of bulbous, slow head. I think Kelly Gallup came up with this, this terminology of, of slow head, fast tail. And it's the way you manipulate your materials in your flies. So you've got these, free flowing materials in the back of the fly with, with, um, a head material that will push a lot of water. So you get this hydrodynamic effect around the fly. You've got all this water being pushed by the head around the fast tail that wants to wiggle all over the place freely in the water. That could be marabou. It could be bucktail. It could be craft fur. It could be any, anything like that. Yep. It could be uh, a, a rabbit strip, right? Yeah, oh yeah, rabbit strips are terrific. Yep, they move everywhere in the water. Nice. Um, yeah, I was just thinking of another, uh, we had another comment just from, um, it was on, let's see here if I can track it down. Well, I guess here's one I did want to, before we get out here, just on the, again, back to the bucktails. This was from, um, actually, this was Cameron Mortensen uh, mentioned this in the Facebook yeah, group. Yeah, he, I had him on in a, uh, a past episode, which was great. But uh, he, he wanted to say, uh, ask, how many bucktails uh, do you use in a typical year? Bucktails? Um, well, boy, I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you're not using bucktail for for bass bugs. You know, it's it's more of a streamer oriented material. Or you know, if you're doing like a like a taps bug, it's it's the tail on a popper. Um, but I go through a lot. I don't even know how many bucktails a year. But you know, as far as like patches of belly hair and yeah. stuff for bass bugs, I go through. Oh man, I, I mean, I. So yesterday in between, I, you know, I went fishing for a little while, but I worked for about five hours in the morning before I went. And then I worked into the three hours last night when I got back home, I went through, I went through seven or eight patches of hair. Wow. <laughs> maybe more than that yesterday yeah. during, during that, you know, and I've got about 
three dozen flies to make today. And I've already burned up this morning. Um, I've burned up three patches of hair this morning. So, yeah. you know, I, I go through, I go through a significant amount of material a year. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, and one other comment here was on, um, this was from Russ. He said, uh, how do you get, uh, how do you get into the big fish avoiding the small fish? And is there, you know, is, is scent uh, important and where do they, uh, and also where do they hang in the water? You know, if you're thinking of big fish, do you, do you think about that much? Or are you just kind of going out there and do? Just, yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big fish hunter. Um, so originally when I, when I started bass fishing, I just like smallmouth fishing. I, I just, I wanted to catch fish. It didn't make a difference how many, you know, how big the fish was. I just wanted to catch, you know, 50 fish in an afternoon. And honestly, it's, it's not that difficult if you've got, um, a, a water that will sustain a reasonable population of fish. It's not that difficult to catch huge quantities of fish. Uh, what is very difficult is catching big fish regularly. So you have to change, you have to change a couple of things when you're hunting for big fish. Um, everybody thinks, okay, you know, you want to, you want to fish for big fish. You need to fish big flies all the time. And there's a little bit of truth to that for sure. Um, I mean, I tend to fish larger bait fish or, you know, whatever patterns. Um, and that's, it's not so much that big fish are only eating big baits. It's that bigger baits will draw less strikes from smaller fish, if that makes sense. So you're already eliminating some of the, I hate to use the word hassle, but some of the hassle of constantly being hooked up with small Mm -hmm. fish, uh, which gives you more time to focus in on catching those bigger fish. But to catch a big fish regularly, you need to think like a big fish. So what does that mean? It, it means that you need to have a little bit more understanding of the biology of whatever species that you're chasing. So if we're talking just smallmouth, you need to understand seasonally what those fish are doing. You need to understand how weather patterns affect their behavior. Um, not only from a pressure front perspective, but that is important. Uh, there are very specific things weather-wise that affect what those fish are doing. And some of it has to do, uh, directly with, with swim bladder. Some of it has to do with the fact that they're light sensitive. I mean, everybody forgets like fish don't have eyeballs or they don't have eyelids, right? Mm -hmm. So they can't just close their eyes if it's too bright outside. They have to change their position within the water to go into an area that has less light so that they can, you know, see properly. So all of these little things uh, affect how how you're catching fish. Um, one of the things that I like to do, a bigger fish, a more dominant fish, is going to have a better location in a feeding area. So if you come to a spot in a stream and you can say, okay, I know fish are going to be hanging out here eating because, you know, I've got water coming in directly. There's bait fish over there, whatever the case may be. It might be a, a perfect spot for a, uh, an ambush, you know, I mean, smallmouth are ambush predators. 
except in the fall. The fall, they become more open water hunters, but for most of the season, they ambush their prey. It's all about calories in versus calories out. So they never want to expend more calories eating than they're taking in at the, you know, at, at any given time. So if you, if you know a little bit about that, um, and then you, you understand this, this idea of, uh, where a bigger fish is going to be hanging, you know, what, what makes a spot more, um, what, what makes a, a bigger fish drawn to a certain spot over another yeah. spot? Which is usually, is that then typically cover? Up. Is that going to be the main thing is protection or, or are they as concerned with protective? Well, it, it, I mean, it depends on the time of the year and it depends on, on food source. Let, like, let's take none of to, these fish are ever buried. What if we just take it to right now? We're kind of in the, uh, I guess, September. If you just say this time of year, is this a decent time uh, for smallmouth out there? Oh, yeah. This is a great time of year. I mean, they're they're prepping for winter right now, these fish. The water temps are getting cold. So these fish are now actively hunting schools of bait and crayfish. You know, the understanding that relationship between between forage and fish is really important mm-hmm. to, to key in on big fish. So crayfish spawn, uh, they, they begin their spawning in the fall. So right now they're, they're beginning their spawning, which means the larger crayfish are going to be exposed on the rocks. They're going to be mating, uh, which, which opens them up to easy daytime predation by bass. Yep. So my crayfish patterns naturally this time of year go to, you know, pretty big. I'm throwing two and a half to three and a half inch crayfish patterns this nice. time of year to, to, you know, to coax in those bigger gotcha. smallmouth. <laughs> uh, and that will go all the way through until, you know, late in the spring. It will be, you know, the crayfish spawning goes from fall and it, and it finishes up, uh, you know, late in the spring. Mm-hmm. So that time of year, you're starting to throw bigger, bigger crayfish, whereas all summer long, we're throwing little crayfish, juveniles, you know, one to to two inches uh, in in size, you know, one inch to two inches. Uh, It's the same thing with bait fish. So this time of year, all the bait have had a chance to go through the growing season. So they're no longer little fry. Now they're two, three, four inches. So now you can start throwing bigger stuff. And if I'm in bigger rivers, I'm throwing even bigger flies. I mean, it's nothing for me to throw an eight inch streamer wow. to catch big smallmouth yeah. in the Hudson or the Mohawk. And, and how bigger, like what is a, what's a big, uh, uh, smallmouth versus kind of your average over there? Uh, bass wise, you mean? Yeah. Or, or bait wise? Yeah. Just small. Oh, yeah, bass bass I mean, you know, if like the Schoharie Creek's a small Creek. So if you're catching, 16 to 18 inch fish all day long you're you're doing pretty well yeah and i mean that's you know that that photo that i put up uh, i put up a a photo yesterday afternoon of of one of the fish that we got in the afternoon uh and that that fish was you know 18 and just a little bit over 18 inches okay uh you know so if, if you can go out and you can regularly target 16 17 18 inch fish in those streams you're doing very well you can catch cookie cutter fish all day long you know that eight to Yep. eight to 14 inch range they're easy you can yeah. dead drift woolly buggers for them all That's day right. long and get bored they're aggressive yeah okay so so yeah before we um i just want to get into a couple of more maybe 
kind of smallmouth bass fishing tips. Maybe think about that as we're getting this. But I just wanted to check again if, you know, take, I'm just picturing, you know, we've got this riffle going into this maybe a deeper area again, and you've got this, this crayfish mm-hmm. pattern on. Is there a spot when it goes in there, when you're looking at that pool where, you know, if we're thinking of the big fish where you might, uh, is there something that sticks out to you that you're looking for? Or is it more, you you're, you just know that pool, that run? If I, when I look at any area of structure, I kind of break it down. Um, all right. There, there's a couple of different things that you can look for. So let's just, we'll start with a very basic idea of boulder, right? So if you see one big rock, everybody knows there's going to be fish behind that boulder on the other side on the downstream side of the boulder because Mm -hmm. there's a pocket there of calm water and fish can chill out there. That particular spot will probably hold a few fish, but they're going to be fish that are more passive. So the front side of a rock holds, chances are it's going to hold the bigger fish and it's also going to hold the more aggressive fish. That fish has a split second to make a decision whether what you're throwing to them looks tasty or not. So that's always going to be the spot that I target first. I'm always going to look for an area that's going to hold potentially the bigger, more aggressive, more actively feeding fish. And then if nothing happens on that front side after two or three casts, I will then switch over to the back side. But when I break down an area uh, you always want to keep this idea of like fan casting in mind where, you know, if you had a clock yeah. spread out across the water, you're working, you know, by the hour all the way across an area. That way, if you start upstream and then work your way downstream, you're not spooking any, any fish along the way. Mm-hmm. You're able to offer up those aggressive fish first and then slowly work your way towards the more passive fish. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, that does. So basically you're just, you're covering the water kind of systematically. And would you say just generally speaking, when you think of the bigger fish, you know, like your example there above the rock, do they just tend to hold in maybe some water that just takes a little more work, um, you know, to, to hold in and where the kind of the smaller fish are just in the more protected water? Is that, is that a, a valid oh, statement? Still got, so there's still a, a pocket in the front of a boulder that has a calm area. It's just a much smaller area than on the back side of the boulder. Like yeah. we see it a lot. Uh, I used to do a lot of steelhead fishing. I don't do it as much anymore because I just don't like being out in the winter, but uh, I, I would see it during that a lot. You know, people would always try to get to the back side of a rock, but there was always a monster sitting on the front side. And chances are, if you were swinging a fly, that big fish in the front would just shoot out and, and tear your arms off, you know? Yeah. Um, and and bass are, are very much the same way. They just, you know, again, it's that kind of an ambush yep. thing, but they're, they're in the, they're right dead center in the feeding zone, which means they've got the first shot at the biggest, the best, the easiest prey in that location. Gotcha. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Um, 
And before we uh, just kind of get ready to move move on out of here, um, did, were there a couple of tips you might provide just for smallmouth bass that we haven't talked about here? Anything else we missed that might help somebody get into some some fish? Could be I deep, mean, yeah. I would say just go out there. Don't forget to stop and look. You know, uh, just observe what's going on around you. There is always clues to be had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't don't get locked into a an idea. The way we want to fish and the way we have to fish right. may be two completely different things. And I think that that's important to remember. Are you you know you, you want to go bugs? out and you want to catch? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, like small insects. Yeah, yeah. Are you fishing anything else that's not a you know for those fish? Occasionally, I mean, if I'm in really low clear water, then that completely changes everything uh it changes what i throw it changes you know how i how i throw it it's uh you know i use some damselfly nymphs i mean halgermites are bugs obviously yeah. I, I use those a lot yeah. um i use uh dragonfly nymphs occasionally if it's appropriate every once in a great blue moon i'll throw on a kind of nondescript stonefly-ish oh, yeah. looking thing if i see a lot of them yeah um, you know, if I see a lot of them in the water, I'm having a difficult day. What about like dead a drifting uh, I was just going to say, what about like a pat stone or a, like a girdle bug or something like that with, you know, is that, that's kind of old school, like super old school, but I guess you're using all sorts of stuff that wiggles around, right? Yeah. I mean, anything that's got some movement to it, you know, there are situations when dead drifting, something you know if if i do use smaller insects like that a lot of the time it's on a like a dropper style rig it's on a trailer okay uh so i'll have you know whatever main fly that i think is going to work and then i'll tie a little you know 18 20 inch piece of mono or floral off the back of that hook and i'll i'll put a trailer on if, if i'm not uh if i'm having a difficult day gotcha there's lots of little things you could do like that i do it with poppers also i'll throw a big popper on as the fish call. And then I do a, a dropper oh, yeah. minnow pattern off the, the back of that hook, a popper go. dropper. And uh, <laughs> oh, boy, dropper. does that work on, yep. That's badass. Boy, does that work on difficult days? No I mean, kidding. if you've got to really call some fish in, that's uh that's a great way to do it. That's sweet. Yeah. That's an awesome tip for sure. Okay. Well, you know, uh, Pat, this is kind of like a lot of the good shows that I have. It's uh, I think we could sit here and talk forever. I, I'm going to, kind of respect your time and, and let you get out of here um and maybe some of this stuff i'll check back with you down the line and if you know we can get you back on or something like that but um maybe just yeah. to, you know to to kind of wrap this up really quickly are there um you know i mean we just touched the surface on a lot of things anything else as far as resources or you know if somebody say they're new to the whole popper deer hair kind of tying and uh, you know is there any what would you might just grab your dv probably or, or your book might be the best place to really get it dialed in yeah, I mean, you know, those are, if you want to stick with, with you know, what, what I have to offer, then, yeah, you know, my DVD will give you pretty much everything you need to know about deer hair. Um, you know, uh, the book has a lot of that stuff in it also, plus a whole lot of other things. I mean, take a class, too. Yeah. You know, I teach classes all over the country. Oh, yeah, um, okay. Well, we're, is that yep, schedule, yep. can they find that schedule on your website where you're speaking and everything? 
Yep, yep, that'll be up on my website each year. Um, I haven't put anything on there for this year yet, but I'll be at the Fly Tying Symposium in New Jersey in uh, November, and I'll be at the the New Jersey show in uh, January, and then I do a bunch of them yeah, yeah. during the, the course of the year, mainly East Coast-oriented, but, yeah. but I travel around also. I'll be in Pennsylvania uh, in November also at uh, a little club there. So, I mean, I you know, that stuff will be updated, but... You know, as much as, as as the books and videos and stuff will, will teach you, and it's great to be able to go back and reference things, it's always really nice to be able to take a hands-on class with, with an instructor. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I will say about, about uh, learning, make sure that you're learning properly from the get-go. Don't get – don't learn bad habits because – uh, when when you go into that and, and you just it, it kind of reinforces those bad habits if you just keep going and going and going. So if you're going to learn, just learn properly from the start and don't. There's no shortcuts. There, you know, bass bugs take a long time to make and they take a really long time to learn how to make properly. And don't ever think you're too good to get better. You know, uh, it, it, I, I'm constantly looking for ways to improve my bugs and my technique and whatever. Uh, don't get don't get stuck in that idea of being you know some kind of fly tying superhero. Just go out there and 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 get better and learn from other people. And uh, yeah, just keep nice. at it. That's the biggest thing. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com/pat. I've added some local trips uh, that might be of interest to you. Um, hopefully, these are. Something maybe a little closer to home or something you can do. One, two, three-day trips with guides that you've heard on the show. I'm putting those together now. So go to wetflyswing.com slash destination to find out how to get some information on upcoming trips. That's all I got for you today. Thanks again. Um, if you want to give a shout-out on social, just at mention uh, wetflyswing. And maybe if you have a tattoo you want to share, do that. That'd be pretty funny to see what, what you have going there. So uh, thanks again for somebody to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up this soon and hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.